So if you remember, last week we talked really about the origin story of our separation from God. We looked at Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve's um, move away from God. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, we said God is relational. God is forgiving because God is loving But that doesn't apparently keep us from messing it up, right? We have a a good good chance of forgetting that as we go throughout our lives and we remain really in need of divine grace. We reject vulnerability and we are drawn to power. That was really the essence of last week's sermon. And whether our refusal to be vulnerable leads to a desire to uh, amass more power or our love of power keeps us from being vulnerable, sin remains a constant source of disruption between God and us. That was the essence of week one of our new chapter, We Are Who We Are. And I think it is really, really important for us to recognize our need for divine grace and how God solves for this or works to repair the breach between us and God. Because if we can't recognize within ourselves the need for divine grace, then God's story really makes very little sense. Sin, then, is that which separates us from God, but it also decays our relationships and challenges our divine purpose or spark. And so we're going to be talking about sin a lot over the next several weeks, really throughout this season of Lent, and I think it's important that we have a good working definition of sin. Now, I'm not going to say that this is the only definition of sin, but it has been very helpful for me over the past few years to formalize kind of what I mean when I say sin, because there's a lot of people out there defining sin in a lot of different ways. And I want us to at least be on the same page, no pun intended here, uh, about what sin is and how we are working to eradicate sin in our lives. So I want you to write this down in your journal. If you don't have a journal, there's extra copies in the narthex. This is the working definition that I want us to use throughout the year. Sin is anything that puts us at the center of our own story. Sin is anything that puts us at the center of our own story. Now that definition is incomplete. I I hear you. And it certainly needs qualifiers. But the spirit of this definition I think represents sin well. So sin is anything that puts you at the center of your own story, your own universe, or your own life. Now, John Wesley, who's an 18th century Church of England priest, also kind of an accidental founder of the Methodist movement, he also knew this, right? And he understood that we tended to center our own needs, our own voice, our own vices, our own opinions, our own politics, our own ideas over all else. 
And the moment that we live solely for self, we become separated. We become separated in rather significant ways from God. So Wesley was all about personal piety. He was all about it. Essentially, he believed that God's grace was so active in the world and in the lives of individuals that if we could recognize it, if we could accept it, if we could trust it, we could live changed lives. We could actually not put our life at the center of our own story, but we could replace ourselves with God and with neighbor. We could live lives that are focused on God and neighbor, gospel and stranger, Jesus and the enemy. Replacing ourselves at the center of our life with God had then a distinct outcome. We lived more and more like Christ. John Wesley was very practical in his theology. The more we focused on our personal piety, the more our lives looked like Christ. And for Wesley, this was all a very personal journal journey. If you read his journal, you'll understand he took meticulous notes about his own piety. But he also recognized that personal piety wasn't enough. Because let's be honest, who cares if you're right with God while the community in which you live is oppressed, fractured, sick, hungry. And so Wesley believed that it was both personal piety and a pursuit of social holiness that that were really at the marks of what it means to be a fruitful disciple. Sin then becomes not just something that is personal, which it is, but it is also something that can take root or exist within community. Sin is both personal and communal. And our text today invites us to see just how serious God takes such communal failure. We are in the book of Micah, one of the prophets. I'm reading chapter six, verses one through eight. And I promise you, You know verse 8 very well. Hear these words. Hear what the Lord says. Rise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people. And he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised and what Balaam son of Beor answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, and what you may know, the saving acts of the Lord, what God requires. This is the people's response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
Micah says, he has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Now, there's no doubt that a group of people, when gathered together, can do really strange things, right? They can do really strange things when we get in groups and we begin to listen to one another. When I was uh, studying abroad, I read a fascinating piece in the student newspaper. It essentially was an expose on British folk psyche. Now, British folk people are indeed odd. They're very strange folks. Such oddity is probably uh, seen in all cultures by the outsider, but I still contend that British culture has both this comforting kind of aesthetic, like tea every afternoon with little tiny cookies, and they do some really strange things, the British. British food is awful, by far the worst of all European food. Uh, Their fascination with the monarch does not make much sense for me, a Texas boy. And the fact that Piers Morgan still has a TV show, that's really strange, right? (laughs) But one thing that British folks love to do uh, is they love to stand in line, the queue. And they'll queue up for really anything at any time. And apparently they'll queue up for nothing because the student newspaper did a, uh, a research experiment on the psyche of British folks, specifically around their need or desire to just stand in line. And so they offered a free something uh, with a few folks who stood in line and by the end of the experiment, the line was very, very long. And they interviewed folks, why are you standing in line? And almost 20% of people in line said they did not know why they were standing in line. <laughs> the British love to stand in line. And it is so strange to me that we do very silly things when we are in groups. Truth is, we also do really harmful things when we're in groups. And scripture is actually filled with examples of people when getting together, doing really awful things to one another. We have the capacity to do great harm. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain, kind of an important assignment, hearing from God the law so that he can help craft the community. And while uh, Moses is gone, he's gone for a while, the people feel vulnerable. They're scared, they're fearful, and so they construct a golden calf in his absence to replace God. There's a group of people that um, are smart and intelligent, and they believe that they can actually build a tower to reach the heavens. We read about that in Scripture as well. Also, Sodom and Gomorrah become so drunk with power that they refuse to offer hospitality to everyone, including a divine messenger, an angel of the Lord. We know that people do awful things when in groups in Scripture. It's those who know Jesus best, his neighbors, his friends, even part of his family. They get so worked up, adopting a mob mentality that they try to throw Jesus off of a cliff. It's a group of people that will shout, 
Hosanna on Palm Sunday, and just a week later we'll be yelling, crucify him. So we see in scripture that when folks get together, we have the capacity to do really, really different and horrible things. And one of the worst offenders is the church. Whether it's boarding schools for American Indians or slavery sanctioned and supported by a perverse reading of scripture or covering up sexual abuse, the church is not immune to this social sin and we have a capacity for allowing sin to actually decay into evil. Micah's role, which just sounds horrible if you ask me, being an Old Testament prophet, sounds like absolutely the worst job. Micah's role is to inform folks how horrible they actually are. His rural upbringing makes him extremely sensitive to the social sin of the urban elites. And honestly, Micah's concern is one that it still exists today. That religious folks and the powerful are what? Talking the talk, but not walking the walk. They have essentially replaced God's word and the divine will of God with cultic practices that may appear faithful, but ultimately are hollow and empty. Our text describes then a divine court. God has called the people to speak up, to defend themselves, demanding from the people an answer to why they continue to fail. Actions like this are included in a lot of prophetic writing, including um, Hosea and Isaiah. And God is asking the people why they continue to practice harsh and aggressive land practices that dispose and take advantage of the poor. God is curious and needs answers to why they disregard those in their own midst who need help why they continue to refuse to be just, to practice equity, to love the stranger. And Micah has brought their sins into the only courtroom that can contain God's divine wrath, nature and creation itself. Like I said, this is not new for God's chosen people. This is a common thread a common issue between God's chosen and God. This is something we see unfold in Scripture time and time again. And what really remains true throughout Scripture is people with power often, well, they suck. That's it. We see it time and time again that their actions destroy the lives of those God has over and over called the faithful to love and serve. This sin isn't simply personal, right? It's not just one person that God is frustrated or angry with. It has become rooted in the community itself. And to make things worse, the leaders and well-off use religion and their temple rituals to hide their sin, not to atone for it, not to draw close to God, but to mask what they do so that they can continue to do it. Micah's defense for the people is metaphoric. They plead their case with God and essentially ask, 
How can we get out of this? How can we fix this? How can we make this right? Micah says, with, all, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 10, of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Essentially, what do you want from us, God? How can we fix this? Note that their solutions are simply wearing bigger masks and making a bigger deal out of the temple ritual that they've hid behind. Like an oligarch looking for a way out or a billionaire trying to pass the buck and not be a father, the people want to buy their way out of the charges. This isn't how God's economy works. The notion of justice, divine justice, has zero room for power plays of men who think nothing can touch them. One cannot make an idol out of their worship and get away with it. In, fi in fact, Micah delivers to them the impossible, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. And this is so hard for us and for communities not grounded in divine love. In fact, it is a death sentence, really. An impossible task for us to do alone. Because the only way through this crucible of repentance is a rejection, a complete rejection of the benefits and trappings of a powerful lifestyle in a 1% like community. God has indeed seen this before. And God knows that just like individuals, entire communities can and often do refuse to be vulnerable and almost always gravitate towards power. Sinful people, plural there, right? Sinful people do sinful things when they have control and when they have power. Slavery, Jim Crow, Japanese internment camps, proxy wars around the globe, taking shots at trans kids for primary votes, letting the VA crumble, shouting at black children walking to school, marching on Charlottesville, paying people $7.25 an hour. When organized and still sinful, communities turn away from God and the worst offenders use their religion to cover it up. We do not need prayer in school. What we really need is to fund education. And yet, and yet, we often think we can get away with it. Micah knows what John Wesley knew, that real change comes when those with privilege and responsibility decide to live faithfully over living for themselves. The sins of people can easily become the laws of the land. And the best economic practice and the hip innovations that are touted as progress still remain deeply sinful. So how do we solve for this? How do we solve for this? 
How do we solve for this overwhelming delusion? How can we as a community return to God? How does God restore communities, cities, and neighborhoods? And how can God restore churches, the ones tasked with both promoting and helping people practice personal piety and living for social holiness? How do we actually do this? I think it starts with us, with churches and communities admitting that we are sinful, working to repent and committing to doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. Anything else is seeking to distract, to cover up, or at worst, remain ignorant to the call God has placed on our lives. The good news is this, this work isn't solely ours to do. In fact, we can't do it alone. God continues to show up in our midst. God has met us, is meeting us, and will meet us as we turn toward the work of divine love in the world. We just have to be comfortable with vulnerability, and we have to trust that the seduction of power can be overcome, not only in our personal lives, but also in our community. This is what God demanded, and this is what Micah believed. The question is, do we? Will you pray with me? God, we trust that you can move in ways that stir us into repentance and invite us to live lives that look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. But we also know that our own personal piety isn't enough while folks remain hungry, while folks continue to live on the street, while there are people who continue to live and operate on the margins of our society. We know we can't solve this thing alone and it's probably gonna take more than an afternoon. But we do trust that you call us into both repentance and action as a community for sin is not only something that we must rid our own lives of, it is also something that we must be vigilant about in the communities that we call home. For you are a God who wants us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly Help us, help us do that today and in the days to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.